IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we celebrate the 100th episode of our program. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He's got 99 problems, but IndieCast ain't one. Ian Cohen. So, I, I don't think I'm speaking with hyperbole when I say that having a indie rock podcast launch in uh, what August, I think, 2020, yeah. and having it last nearly two years, like 100 episodes with like no guests, and also the fact that we go like several months without a good album being released... I think this is like one of the greatest accomplishments in music journalism over the past two years. Like we should, we should do like what they do at the Oscars. Like, you know, at the end they have the montage of like all of the, uh, fit, you know, the actors who died over the past year. Like we should do that with all the things that we've outlasted. Well, yeah, it is amazing. Not the wisest decision either one of us have made <laughs> in our lives to start a show Right in, like, the heart of the pandemic. I mean, shut down. There's literally nothing going on. What did we even talk about in 2020? I do know. Do you remember what our first episode was about? No memory of it at all. The suburbs. It was a 10-year anniversary (laughs) celebration of the suburbs. Like, this bucolic, warm, nostalgic album when they're, like... And it was not just peak pandemic, but it was also, like, peak of all the protesting going on. We were leading up to an election. Um, I had a lot of doubts as to whether, like, hey, is this a good time to do an indie rock podcast? But here we are two years later and all of our problems have been solved. When I feel like maybe that forced us to be a little more creative and instead of having substance on our show, which you would expect a podcast to have, we just found ways to invent topics that have sustained us over, you know, now 100 episodes. And later in this uh, anniversary episode, we're going to be talking about some of our favorite moments from the IndieCast era. We have not seen each other's lists. I think we both picked five uh, uh, moments. Mine are just incredibly uh, digging into the minutia of this show. Things that, like, are not really news except in our world. There's a couple things that are significant uh, to the greater indie rock community. But uh, I'm just impressed by our ability to just conjure bullshit out of nothing <laughs> that we could talk about on the show. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, when we talk about just the past two years of bullshit, like I had a lot of trouble with this episode trying to remember like what bullshit we discussed on IndieCast and like what bullshit we discussed in our group DMs because uh, you know, I, I really thought we were going to have to talk about that episode where we talked about Halsey calling for a 9-11 on Pitchfork HQ. That actually happened in 2019. I think one thing that this, this uh, episode brings out with me is just I've completely lost track of how to, uh, you know, how to conjure a sense of time and space. Like, we have just had complete time-space collapse over the past three years. I feel like there was some things happening, like, right after the lockdown. But then once you got to the summer, things really slowed down. And that's when we decided that we were going to get started. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's remarkable that we got this far. And I'm looking forward to uh, recounting some of our uh, favorite moments but from, from the past of IndieCast. But I feel like we have to address some of the big stories of the past week first. 
And uh, we got to start with this Taylor Swift story. Uh, and this is a really, I think, sign of progress for music culture. Because, you know, if you look back at the 70s, bands like Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones and, you know, Elton John, all these people, they had airplanes that they would fly in their own. Pl- there was, I think there was this one plane called the Starship flying around all, all around the world to gigs all these rock stars, and I think when we look back on that era, we can all agree that that was very rockist. All these <laughs> rockers are emitting all these CO2s. So, how great is it that we learned this week that that uh, the number one person, uh, number one celebrity most responsible for emitting CO2s, emitting the most CO2s, is Taylor Swift. Okay, I think we have to clarify that Taylor Swift... It wasn't just her; it was her lending out her private plane as yes. well. I, I can you like I, I just love that defense. Yeah, yeah. Her representative <laughs> clarified that it's not just Taylor Swift flying around; it's she's lending her plane out. And and just to uh, you know illustrate exactly how many uh, times this plane's been used, apparently it's been used 170 times in the first 200 days of 2020. I mean, that's incredible. like are they renting the plane from her, like other celebs, <laughs> or is she just like lending it out? Is she just like just throwing CO2s out like candy here. I mean, because that's, like that's a lot. That's like, you know, almost every day. Yeah, just like, don't adjust the radio. Make sure you leave the keys. Like, uh, you know, make sure there's no, like, beer cans in the cup holder or whatever. Um, yeah, I... So, uh, apparently, that's 8.3 metric tons of carbon dioxide. That's the equivalent of 1,184 average people. So, like, so about 1,200 people emitted as much CO2 in the first part of 2020 as Taylor Swift's jet. So anyway, I just want to congratulate Taylor Swift. She's emitting CO2s like a girl boss. Uh, you know, we have some, finally some, uh, some gender parody here at the top of the CO2s list. Um, I mean, look, are we going to rake her over the coals for this? Or is this just like a funny story? I, I think it's more of like a funny story. Not that yeah. this is a good thing necessarily, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not like Taylor Swift is single-handedly causing climate change. Although, you know, if you were to ask her, if you were to ask the fan base, like, is Taylor Swift possible? Uh, Is it within her capability to enact climate change? Maybe, but look, I mean, I'm no climate change expert. You know, I'm not on a 1975 album. But, uh, you know, I would say that this is, like, not a fun story, but just maybe a way for people to launder uh, you know, criticism they might have of like Taylor Swift's music in a non-musical way. We see this a lot uh, with pop stars, where you know the the it's a death wish to be even remotely critical of a Taylor Swift album. But you can find like sideways things in, and also it's a way for people to just express their frustrations about like climate change in general. Uh, you know, like this is not nothing, but it's still like. Making Taylor Swift like have to do something different with the use of her private plane is like a grain of sand compared to like what is needed, which is probably like widespread governmental action. And that's and that's the last we're going to be of like 1975, like talking about climate change at the beginning of our hour long episode. Yeah, Maddie Healy. I wonder if he ever used Taylor Swift's private plane. <laughs> Could have been in the circle of friends who get private plane usage. Uh, he drops a phone call. Yeah, you know, I, it reminds me of like when Taylor Swift was blamed for uh, Donald Trump getting elected. Like, I feel like that was a thing. It absolutely was a thing. And yeah, we didn't talk about that on IndyCast, but that beat us by like four years. Yeah, exactly. So, 
and she was blamed because she didn't like explicitly endorse uh, Hillary Clinton, I guess. So you know, it's it's Taylor Swift's fault that like Hillary Clinton didn't go to Wisconsin once during the 2016 campaign. <laughs> she could have lent her I mean, private plane. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That would have been that that might have been good there. Um, speaking of another indie rock musician, uh, I wanted to ask you about this Beyonce. I guess it's a controversy. I feel like it's gone away pretty quickly. But, you know, her record Renaissance comes out last week. Very critically acclaimed, of course. Very well received. But there was some criticism about a few different things. Uh, uh, there was the sample of Milkshake, Calice. Uh, is it Kellis is it or Calice? It's it's Calice, and it's not right. actually a sample. I think it's like a minor interpolation. Like, this is happening a lot since um, Olivia Rodrigo last year. Uh, like anytime there's like this possibility that you might be, you might get a lawsuit, you just give them songwriting credit. And then everyone says, oh my God, they ripped off. Like this has happened a lot on this new Beyonce album, apparently. Well, but like with the Khalees thing, they just took the milkshake part out, which I thought was incredible. Because you think you just kick her a songwriting credit, although maybe there's dispute as to you know, because I know the Neptunes were credited on that. I don't know that. I mean, that's like a long-standing feud between Kalise and the Neptunes. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard contrast. You know, different differing things about. You know, who has the authorship of that song and who who deserves it? I don't know if Beyonce was just like it's just easier to take this out, so she took that out. And then there's another instance. I forget what song it is, but she uses a term that is considered derogatory now. Toward. Who exactly is this derogatory towards? Yeah, is it? It's 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 ableist. It's ableist, and like so, we saw the word, and I'm just going to use the word as an illustrative thing. Uh, it's the word spaz. Um, so um, it was seen as problematic when it showed up in a Lizzo song a few, um, like a month ago, and the same thing happened on a Beyonce out, uh, song. So she took that word out. It's considered ableist, particularly in the UK. Yeah, so that was taken off of her record, and it, there is this interesting thing now, where you know because of the digital music world, you can change a song like that, and you can kind of do that 1984 thing, like where that word never existed in that song ever. You know, it's not like the old days, like where you have the Body Count record, and <laughs> Cop Killer is this controversial song. And eventually Ice-T decides to take the song off the record, but it's future pressings of the CD. So if you bought the first million copies or whatever of that CD, you'd still have Cop Killer. There's still physical evidence that that song existed. But now we're in this world like where, like in a week or so, people may not even remember that there was like a Khalees controversy or a uh, an S-word controversy with this album. And... I don't know. There's something about it, and maybe this is because I'm older. I remember the analog world, but it's very strange to me. I I feel like, especially with an artist like Beyonce, who's so often described in these terms of like perfection. You know, people look at her as someone who literally never makes a mistake, and here she is going into her music and like erasing the mistakes, so that for future generations, they're not gonna know that she did this and. I just feel like, you know, isn't that part of a particular moment in time, you know, like a, a particular word choice that might not look good uh, in retrospect? I mean, it's like, 
is Eminem at some point going to say, I don't like all the homophobic language I used early in my career, so I'm going to go back and change my records to reflect that. On one hand, you could look at that as a sign of progress, and I'm not going to defend the use of homophobic language in a song, but there is also something about how this was part of the culture in that moment in time, and it just seems odd to me that you would go in and literally, you know, whitewash it in that kind of way. I mean, I don't want to make too much of this. This is like, this record's only, it hasn't even been out, I guess it'll, it, it will have been out for a week by the time this posts. But I don't know, there's something about this that d- doesn't sit right with me. I think well, if you're talking about like, uh, I think there's like the in-between uh, of the Eminem uh, style of, or even the Beastie Boys method of like apologizing for past works and the Beyonce one, which is straight up erasing it. If you go to the, if you go to the Black Eyed Peas Spotify page, they have a song called "Let's Get Let's Get It Started." That was called definitely it was definitely called something else. Uh, in two yes, let's, <laughs> let's get our word. Yeah, in. and this was two thousand three. Like uh, maybe this is just a thing that we'll look back on. It's like, oh wow, I can't believe you used to be able to say that word. And also, you can make the ar- like I can see the argument that oh, this proves that Beyonce can learn. It's like it actually is. I don't know, more endearing than being perfect and that someone is willing to admit mistakes. Um, but either way, I think the more interesting thing is that after all of this, Monica Lewinsky uh, wants the 2013 song Partition to be changed because she gets referenced in a way that you would probably expect. Um, I th- It's just interesting to me that like we hear about like Lizzo and Beyonce changing uh, these lyrics, but... I listened to a lot of rap music in the late '90s, and you know Monica Lewinsky's gonna have her hands full if she wants to like erase every single mention of her name on a on a rap record. It's like, is it Lizzo and Beyonce because they present themselves as being like progressive, whereas I don't know if like Migos use like ableist language. Will anyone ask them to change it? I, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe this, maybe we're not making bigger deal of it than it needs to be. But I mean, you mentioned uh, late '90s rap. I mean, I just randomly saw the video for uh my name is eminem making another eminem reference here but like there's a monica like monica lewinsky's in that video or like a woman that made to look like monica lewinsky uh is in that video um i mean i don't know it's like that stuff is offensive but like that was part of late 90s culture too at the same time and i think it's one thing to apologize for something but to erase it i think is something else like i don't think that things should be erased because at some point it becomes part of history and people should know that it it existed you know otherwise it's like if you took all the monica Lewinsky stuff out of like late 90s rap that totally changes the perception of like how people looked at that story in the moment you know i think it's better to look back on that stuff and say wow that's pretty fucked up and people shouldn't have acted that way that to totally just take it off the record. I, you know what I mean? Like it, that, that to me, at some point, it just becomes um, ahistorical. You know, so I don't know. Yeah, let's let's think, let's think of the little I, people like Beyonce. <laughs> all right, let's get to our mailbag segment, and uh, thank you all for writing in. It's always great to hear from our listeners. Uh, do you want to read uh, this week's letter? I do. So this comes to us from Dreyfus from Elgin, Oklahoma. Yes. Uh, like, what What a 100th episode mailbag name. Stephen Ian, congrats on 100. My own, most, my own personal most replayed moments are two amazing impressions from both hosts. 
One, Steve suggesting someone do a cover of Steve Miller Band, The Joker as The Joker for Joker 2, and then proceeding to do the worst Joker impression ever put to tape. And then Hey, yeah. the worst? Yeah. Dreyfus, come on, baby. Oh, God, Dreyfus already off on the wrong foot. Two, Steve putting Ian on the spot to do a James Hetfield impression. Ian's amazing Hetfield, yeah, trademark. Followed by Steve's equally amazing renditions of Whiskey in the Jar and Fuel. I don't remember right. this. <laughs> I, I remember that one. Okay, I, so he's complimenting your Hetfield and my Hetfield. He was knocking the Joker impression, but I think it's endearingly bad. I think that's what is what Dreyfus is saying. Well, so we're, we're getting a public mandate for more impressions on IndyCast. Yeah, exactly. Well, the next 100 is all going to be about, it's going to be our Rich Little era. <laughs> Tons of impressions. We're going straight Borscht Belt, baby. It was uh, bound to happen. Uh, thank you so much for sticking together. I have a relatively long commute, and I always look forward to listening on Fridays. As I get older and less adventurous about music, it's great to have two even older folks who remain so passionate and open-minded. Your role models, best Dreyfus Elgin, Oklahoma. Oh man, see Elgin, <laughs> I'm not Elgin. You're from Elgin, Dreyfus. He likes to sneak in the the subtle dig with the compliment, the complisalt, if you will. Yeah. Straight backhanded. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, it's like even older people. Uh, so Dreyfus, like, what are you, are you like 39 then? Are you 40? Are you like, are you a child of uh, 40 years old? Uh, no, thank you for writing Dreyfus. That was a really nice letter. Um, I love that he has moments that he's replaying for their comic value, you know, from, from our past episodes. Yeah. I love, I love the fact that like he goes back and listens to past episodes. You know, I always wonder what kind of replay value podcasts have, but Apparently, like, we just got to commit to some bits, you know, impressions. Maybe that's what we do. Maybe that's the meat of the episode, and we just, like, talk about the 1975 album for, like, five minutes and then just do Matty Healy impressions for the next 55. But um, I, I love that this letter, even though it's not a question, um, like our typical mailbag questions, um, I, I do appreciate the fact, even though it does come, you know, with a little backhand compliment at the end, um, a sense of you know, who our listeners are, like who this show appeals to, because I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. I get discouraged sometimes when, you know, I'm not included in the kind at the cool kids table of music writer Twitter, which I know sounds like an oxymoron, but, um, I always, I I always strive. And I think, you know, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, Steve, but I imagine you kind of feel the same way of like reaching the person who isn't so enmeshed in that world who like maybe finds himself just on the outside a little bit like the tip the the prototypical indie cast fan we've talked about this before is like the per the one person in the friend group who is still hanging on to listening to indie rock but like can't really find that group of people who do it anymore so if they come to you know chill with us for an hour i mean that's fucking beautiful uh that's what keeps me going yeah, you know, what I'm hearing in uh, your your lovely sentiments there just now is that you and I need to be complimenting each other more on Twitter for our stories. <laughs> like, next story that you write, I'm going to say, I have not heard music and understood it until I read this piece. This And, and then, you know, maybe it'll be like a record review. Of, it'll be like a 6.7 record review of like the new news <laughs> record. 6.7 would be a pretty, you know? I think that would be like the rather high one so i hope i go there i hope the muse album's that good by the way the anniversary of the second law is coming up in september so we got to mark our calendars for that because i i feel like that was one of our bits early on that we would do a 10th anniversary episode on the second law 
So, uh, yeah, we got to live up to that. That's just, someone reminded me of that recently. I'd totally forgotten. But, uh, yeah, we can't drop the ball on that one. Uh, the one thing I'm frustrated about with this letter is that one of my moments that I had picked out that I was going to talk about later in this episode was the Joker singing the Joker. And I can't do that now because Dreyfus already said it. So I had to pick something else. But I'm glad Dreyfus singled that out. And he also reminded you of your James Hetfield. I can't believe you don't remember that. You could be doing James Hetfield impressions <laughs> around your wife or, you know, when you're just out at a show or something. And you could just be regaling people. Yeah. Well, keep in mind that we record this episode at 7 o'clock in the morning my time. So maybe I'm not entirely, uh, you know, my brain's not entirely um, humming along. Yeah, I suppose. Let's get to the meat of our episode, and this might be the fastest meat we've delivered. <laughs> Chopped ever. steak, yeah, right on the grill. We were doing it's chipped incredible. Beef. I, you know, for the hundredth episode, I feel like you know we're really stepping it up. I don't know if we're really setting a precedence here for like the next one hundred. If we're going to be doing like twenty minute meats uh, every episode, I don't think people really want a twenty minute meat. I think they like the thirty minute meat, fully cooked. Even if it's like in the oven a little bit longer, mm-hmm. if we get like a 33-minute meet, I don't hear any complaints about that. But we have a lot to talk about in this episode because we're going to be talking about our favorite moments from the IndieCast era. You and I both picked five moments that we wanted to reminisce about uh, from our first 100 episodes. Um, but we did make a list, too, of like things that neither one of us could talk about because they're just really obvious and like mutually understood to be great moments, right? I mean, is that the best way to put it? Yeah, like we didn't want to put like, hey, I put Jimothy on there too because we knew right. that would happen. I mean, like that to me is a quintessential. Same with, same with Kid G. Basically any New York Times pitch bot story that be, is actually real. <laughs> Well, let's let, let's walk through these a little bit a little bit slower here. We got to give Jimothy his due. Jimothy, what, what's the deal with Jimothy? Is he like an R and I cannot remember. Is he like a British rapper, like a British rapper or British R and B singer, something like that? I mean, I mean, it's really just about his name, <laughs> Jimothy. Uh, which, uh, yeah, th- like you said, that was a, he was profiled in the New York Times. Um, yeah, he's a British rapper and musician from from North London, associated with bedroom pop and DIY genres. He was featured in the New York Times. Um, and then we have Kid G, uh, he was also featured in the New York Times, that is, uh, country music's next emo rap star. I want to just point out that we cannot go any further without saying the actual Jimothy has, this is August 23rd, 20, okay, 2021, so what, I, I thought it was 2020. Jimothy's flex looks a little different. <laughs> <laughs> right. Great headline, great headline. Um, I gotta say though, I kind of wish that uh, Jimothy was the next uh, was country music's next emo rap star. I feel like the combination of Jimothy and country music's next emo rap star is just so golden. I mean, because Kid G, the actual emo rap star, it's kind yeah. of a boring name. Uh, it's really the headline from the New York Times that that really sells him. But like, if Jimothy was also Country music's next emo rap star. I mean, that would be, uh, he'd be the king of the IndieCast era. 
Well, the, the, in episode 200, hopefully we'll look back on the Jimothy Kid G collaboration as like the peak of our, uh, uh, the peak of our time. It's, is, is Kid G British? I think Kid G's American, right? I would hope the next country emo star. <laughs> it would be actually way funnier if he was British. He's almost certainly American, though. Yeah, that'd be like just another layer to put on top of that. Um, so we weren't allowed to rank either one of those two because they're just, you know, they're, they're on the Mount Rushmore. You can't really rank them at all. Um, of course, we also had to put St. Vincent, the Daddy's Home album cycle, on the list. Uh, my personal favorite album cycle of the IndieCast era. I don't know about you. Uh, maybe not my favorite album cycle, but I did like uh, St. Vincent performing at Pitchfork Fest on 9-11. Um, that, that, just, that just made my heart sing for some reason. Um, the, the thing is, though, about this album cycle is that Aside from like some music writer Twitter stuff, this album was like really successful and critically acclaimed. So I know, but just the whole thing about oh, like it's it, awesome. Just yeah, the right about her dad, you know, coming home from prison, and I don't know, and he's he had the securities fraud thing, and just the title of the album. I don't know so much about it. I loved, but yeah, that was a critically acclaimed record, as Saint Vincent's music tends to be. Um, I think, you know, because on our list here in Outline, we have Lana Del Rey dating the guy from Salem. I feel like just Lana Del Rey, period, any story involving her, we weren't allowed to rank because there's just so much. With I don't know if you put any other Lana Del Rey stuff on your list. I haven't seen it. Because, like, Lana Del Rey with the, you know, defending the, the January 6th rioters, you know, she put out a couple records in this time. I mean, the Salem guy, dating the Salem guy, that, I guess that's like the peak. Like, does the IndyCast era also include her dating a cop? Did that happen during the last two years? I want to say yes. Okay. I feel like it did. I think this is another one of the... I think this is another one of those things where it could totally have happened in 2019, or maybe it like spans both the pre and post IndyCast era. But I don't have any Lana Del Rey material on uh, my list. If there was, it would definitely be her dating the guy from Salem. But that's like we're still too close to the blast radius from that. We're we're going to be assessing the impact of that for years to come. So we're not going to get ahead of ourselves. And and just to be clear, like the guy from Salem is pulling his weight in this. Uh you know, combination. It's not just about Lana Del Rey. It's also the guy from Salem. And, uh, and we've, we've had some Salem discourse on this show, uh, you know, talking about their fader four performance. I think we did a special, did we do a special anniversary on that? Maybe not. We Cause did. I feel like we talked about their new record. Didn't we? We did talk about their new record. I don't think we did an anniversary one on, on uh, King Knight, but we did do one for a new Salem record in 2020. I want to say. Okay, because I remember I wrote about the 10th anniversary of their Fader Fort performance, the infam- probably the most infamous performance in South by Southwest history. And uh, it published, and then South by Southwest got shut down like the next day. Because that was like right when the pandemic was, was coming down. Uh, and then uh, the last on our You Cannot Rank This list, number five, uh, you put down Eve Barlow at the Depp heard hearing i would just say eve fartlow in general this is another one just like across the board because you had eve barlow hanging out at the johnny depp amber heard hearing but then you also have the eve fartlow thing uh so just barlow in general too much gold there to rank her 
on her own. I mean, she goes on the Mount Yeah, there was one well. episode description that I saw going back through our archives that said, Olivia Rodrigo, Black Midi, plus Fartlow. Easily our best description. <laughs> yeah, we- <laughs> that's, that's an episode, you know, again, I kind of wish I wasn't on this show and I could just listen to it because if I would have seen that come up in my Apple podcast feed, I'm smashing that through the glass of my of my phone. I, I I'd have to buy a new phone after seeing that because I'd just be so excited to listen to that episode. Uh, so okay, so those five things we can't we can't rank. We we both agree that they're wonderful IndieCast moments. Let's get to our individual lists. Um, I didn't rank my list. I don't. Did you rank yours? No. I didn't either. So it was too hard. So why don't you give me, like, we each have five. What's the first thing on your list? So, uh, I mean, it's hard for me to honestly say I'm nostalgic about anything that's happened over the past two years. But there were, like, these brief moments of light where it seemed like life was maybe getting, not back to normal, but, like, getting back to in-person. And we talked so much about, like, what our first live experience not post pandemic, but like in person would be and how desperate we were for just about like anything. My first live experience was seeing turnstile at garden Grove, uh, city immortal, even more seeing turnstile the night before pitchfork fest in Chicago with, um, a couple of my writer friends, tall Rosenberg, Jeff Weiss, Paul Thompson, like all like rap guys through and through don't go to rock shows. And then the one show they see is turnstile, like just, stage diving moshing the entire time and they just seeing their reaction like wait rock shows can do this i mean they can they mostly don't but um yeah it's just general seeing turnstile live and also turnstile becoming like the i don't want to say token but i'm gonna say token rock band that like non-rock people are into easily one of the best developments of the past year yeah that would be good man it's funny because it's a Mine has a big contrast from that. And again, these are unranked, but this is like a hyper-specific thing about our show. And I'm going to do it again now when I read it off, but anytime I mispronounced Sky Fiera, did I say it right that time? (laughs) No. Well, how do you say it? Sky Ferreira. Sky Ferreira. Okay. So, yeah, I just did it when I said the thing here, but yeah, anytime I mispronounced Sky Ferreira, there you go, right? Did yes. I get it? Did I nail it? Anytime I mispronounce her name, I think that needs to be a top IndieCast moment. I mean, just... Although you mispronounce things, too. I feel like I get called out for mispronouncing words. You've mispronounced words, too. But I'm, I'm definitely the more egregious one. Um, but I feel like... Look, how many times... This speaks to like what you were saying before about the people listening to the show. A lot of you are probably the one friend in your group that gives a shit about indie rock so you're not really talking about it ever you're just reading stuff and we're the same way even though we're in the game i'm not surrounded by people that that care about indie rock yeah i'm definitely in the minority in my own life about being interested in sky ferrera killing it steve i know that's twice in a row and i have to think about it very deliberately to get it right um but you know, even for us on the show, it's like we're frequently talking about things that we have never said out loud. We've only typed it in our lives. <laughs> so you know, the pronunciation game is not going to be on point all the time. Yeah, you know, when that's the case. No. Um, yeah. I, I, I look. I. I it, for me, it's just as bad with a lot of these like emo bands that like use 
uh, non-English words. And like, and of course, when the fuck am I talking out loud about emo to anyone? So I, I do agree that your mispronunciations tend to be more egregious. Um, but at the same time, we are both definitely guilty of that, which I don't know, maybe it's just an argument for us to go out and touch grass. I think this is like become part of the appeal of the show though. I feel like people tune in hoping that we mispronounce words and that is why they keep coming back. If we were pronouncing everything correctly, maybe we only make it to 50 episodes and then we're (laughs) done. So it's, it's, I like to think it's something that's endearing about our show. That's that, that I'm going to stick with that. It's endearing and I'm going to continue to do it. Episode 101, our mailbag is going to have a question about Sky Ferreira and Waxahachie. Oh my God. It'll be great. (laughs) What's your next uh, memorable moment? All right. So, um, last week we talked about emo week and our pal Miranda Reiner talking about how like once a year critics start talking about emo and then every other person loses their damn mind. Uh, I think the same thing happens with new metal that happens once a year. They're always in the, you know, they're always in the atmosphere, but last year when ska revival happened, I think that was just the ultimate version of people, like a couple of people being super excited about it, us included. And then like 90% of other people saying like, Oh fuck, I lived through this. Do we have to go through it again? But Scott coming back, like, look, I mean, the Scott revival just was really a couple of articles and like Jeff Rose, like Jeff Rosenstock getting an 8.0 for like a ska version of an album that people already love. But at the same time, it was just really cool to see that Scott, to the degree it is, is still somewhat thriving completely outside the view of, you know, music writer Twitter or like, you know, the indie industrial complex. Um, and also just to see it as like, thriving in its own way in the pandemic like scott is the like least pandemic friendly music imaginable you have eight people you have horns it's really uh based on the live experience so maybe it just kind of showed like how desperate we were for escape right Uh, but at the same time it's like look scott had its moment scott will have its moment it won't be every year like emo or new metal but it will continue to have its diehard defenders. And as IndieCast, we salute that. Yeah, I, I definitely look at that whole Sky Revival discourse as an outgrowth of the pandemic. You know, in the same way that people were saying, I'm going to start working out more, or I'm going to start baking bread, or I'm going to, you know, t- take the, uh, the hot yoga class that I've always wanted to take. And then things return a little bit to normal, and it's like, eh, all right, <laughs> let's move on. And I think... You're right, with Scott, it's such a social music, it's such a high energy thing that after you've been locked in your house for a year and a half, you just feel like, yeah, I I think I can skank again. I think that is palatable for me. And then, you know, you're able to go to bars and it's like, eh, I don't think I'm going to skank in public. That might not be a good idea. But hey, God bless it. Like you said, it's a genre that continues to thrive in its own world. It never goes away. The, the, the diehards love it. And it's fun. I'm glad it had its moment in the sun. I'm sure we're going to have another Scott conversation in about five to seven years. <laughs> uh, you know, it'll just be cyclical. So, you know, God bless it. All right, so for my next one, I'm going to go hyper-specific again uh, with one of my favorite moments of the IndieCast era. I want to talk about Ian getting married and learning that he could have hired the hotel year to play his wedding reception. Uh, that is a great moment in this show. 
Because you got married, which is fantastic. When was that? That was like this, this, like, like fall of 2021, right? How the, how the fuck am I supposed to remember that? Come oh, on. you got to remember at least the first wedding <laughs> October, anniversary. October 10th, 2021. So you got married and uh, people were asking like, what's the Ian playlist going to be at his wedding? Is he going to DJ a bunch of you know emo rock favorites? So apparently Christian Holden from the Hotel Year, they found out that you were getting married and they said that like the band would have played your wedding if they had known about it in advance and of course ian cohen the biggest hotel year booster in the rock critic world i'm sure you would have loved that on some level although maybe you also would have been cognizant of your guests who do not follow emo as closely as you maybe they would have been confused by that but i'm sure there was a part of you that was like oh that would have been great. I could have had the Hotel Year, a band that does does not play live very much anymore. Is this something that haunts you now, almost a year later, or have you accepted it and moved on since then? Oh, uh, I I mean maybe less so, given that like the Hotel Year actually did play a gig about two months later for the Counterintuitive uh, Festival in Boston. Look, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it would have been great in concept. Uh, but you know, I would have had them play hotel year songs and not cover songs. It would have been great. And also like, you know, Hey, where are they going to stay? Uh, like, Hey, we're going to our honeymoon. The hotel year can stay at my place. Um, I, <laughs> I thought you were going to bring up how, when I got back from my like honeymoon, there were people complaining about how I went on a honeymoon instead of reviewing the world is a beautiful place is new album. That's true. I forgot about that part. Yeah. That the honeymoon conflicted with the major emo album release schedule and you weren't able to drop the pitchfork review on that record yeah you know look the public they they are looking for you to deliver the reviews it's like they're putting up the bat signal for you and yeah you're like superman and superman 2 you're running off with lois lane in the fortress of solitude while the world's falling apart yeah that was a crazy thing uh, all the Ian Wedding discourse. Definitely an indie cast highlight for me. Uh, what's next on your list? All right. So uh, there have been a couple times uh, in our 100 episodes where I feel like we've like thrown up a trial balloon about an impending shift to us doing like TV criticism because we know that's the future. The future is always recapped. It's not in music. It's not in hashing out trends. I was really excited when we went through a very short and intense billions phase. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good times. Yeah. yeah, because this was like a time where it almost felt like we were controlling, not controlling things, but like maybe there was like some telepathy going on because there was a point where billions really hit its stride and it started having very indie cast friendly and at times quite forced music cameos like Jason Isbell uh, did a cameo in a in, in a bit of a, a subplot about art versus commerce. There was an episode where Axe meets a acoustic singer songwriter who happens to be opening for Metallica. Uh, and then, uh, you know, James. I don't remember that episode. <laughs> oh, man, that would have been. Oh, wait, was that was that the woman? Was she, yes. Was that like a female? Okay, and uh, and she was on uh, uh, that show about the computers. Uh, Halt and Catch Fire. Halt and Catch Fire. Yeah, she's on that show, right? Yes. I, okay, I remember that episode. Yeah, and like uh, James Hetfield's on there, or I think that he's like kind of comparing their line of work to hedge funds. 
Um, just a just good good Hetfield performance, <laughs> by the way. I thought Hetfield was pretty good. I thought like they would give that to Lars. What you know, Lars thought they'd give it to Lars too. I'm sure. It was upset. I mean, the Hold Steady uh, are in a billions episode. That's right. They were. And they were playing a hedge fund party, which, man, I just imagine if that happens in real life. Like, what what, what the controversy we'd get about that. But Kill, Killer hedge fund parties. <laughs> like, one of my favorite Hold Steady songs. Massive hedge fund nights. Um, and you know, I just love how that stuff was happening kind of concurrently with, like, Succession. You know, they throw their little... Uh, they throw their little Easter eggs to like New York culture Twitter just because they know that that's the people who will discuss and keep the episode hot for the weeks in between uh, airings. But Billions, I, I've lost track. I don't know if they're still doing that in the Michael Prince era, but look, we that, that was a I think it's still going. It's definitely going. I don't know if they're doing the cameo. No, they had a Bruce Spring. They were going to fly a couple of uh, Olympic... Uh, committee people to see a private Bruce Springsteen concert on a private jet. Taylor Swift right. asked, but Bruce was off camera. Okay, I mean they they've used the you know Gang of Youths has been on the soundtrack of that show. Car seat headrest, Mitski. So yeah, they're pulling from the indie cast universe frequently for that show. So yeah, hats off to to Billions. I forgot about the Billions discourse. That was a lot of fun. Um, I want to bring up something that was a little contentious in our listenership here, uh, but I feel like it was definitely memorable, and that's the Bo Burnham uh, discourse, and uh, with his uh, Netflix show, was it what was that called Inside? I think it was called Inside. Yeah, and how we were both pretty dismissive about it, although I said, and I'm not, I was not formally reviewing the show. This was one of the controversial things: is that like I I watched like the first fifteen minutes of it, and I was like. Nope, can't finish this show. <laughs> People were upset that like I was pontificating about Bo Burnham without seeing the whole thing. And my point was, well, I'm telling you that I haven't seen the whole thing. If I didn't tell you that I hadn't seen the whole thing and I was dismissing it, that'd be one thing. But you can take my opinion with a grain of salt because I couldn't even finish it. So that would be my counter. And I'm, I'm like relitigating the Bo Burnham discourse. But I feel like, you know, this was an instance like where some of our listeners revolted against us because of our, our, our take on, on that very popular special. Yeah, it's almost like that minor controversy that occurred about uh, the, the rehearsal where someone was like, I haven't watched the rehearsal yet, but here's what I find dismissive about it. Um, yeah, I gosh, I forgot about that too. But yeah, people were kind of, I think Bo Burnham has like not total, but like partial overlap with our audience like i can imagine like oh, half yeah. our pe- half our listenership like really relates to it finds it super resonant and like the other half probably feel like we do and i would imagine it's like the older audience yeah i think i think our younger listeners that's this is exposing the generation gap in the indie cast community that you're right. I think the older people would probably be like, ah, this guy's corny. And then the younger people are like, no, he's an oracle for our, our two online times, you know? So He's the 1975. Yes. Well, I saw people compare him to Father John Misty. That's like, you know, we, we got several emails about this. And the people who, they were all very nice uh, and well-spoken and you all had good points. The people who were upset about that. You're very articulate about it. But I know like people were saying like, well, you like Father John Misty. 
why don't you like Bo Burnham? And I'm like, well, okay, I mean, I like, uh, you know, George Carlin. Do I have to like Carrot Top, too? I mean, just because they're both comedians? I mean, I don't know. Not, not, okay, I'm relitigating this. I'm comparing Bo Burnham <laughs> to Carrot Top, and I'm taking cheap shots at Carrot Top, which is very easy to do. So maybe I should just cut my losses here before I say anything else. What is uh, the next thing on your list? All right, so speaking of divisive uh, topics on IndieCast, when we did our worst song, like our least favorite songs episode, uh, Delamitri's role to me played a very prominent role. Uh, fuck, that sounded like the worst pun ever. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, like, I want to say like less than like two weeks after we did this episode, for no reason whatsoever, Delamitri performed on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Uh, I don't watch Jimmy Kimmel Live. I cannot stand Roll to Me, but like, it was almost like multiplying two negative numbers to a positive. Delamitri on Jimmy Kimmel Live in 2022, I'm down for that. After 25 years, and this is like a moment that led me to believe that maybe, just maybe, and look, we're getting high off our own supply a little bit this episode. Allow us the indulgence. We made it at 100. Uh, that, I don't know, maybe people up there in like the higher echelons of uh, music supervising and booking are listening to us. I don't know what what was the, I mean, like, were they performing as a part of a like a like an anniversary or something? Because I don't think they have a new record. Like I really no. wonder like what <laughs> was the excuse to book Delamitri. I, I mean, by the way, and I said this at the time that I totally disagree with you as far as that being a bad song or annoying song. I, I like that song. Um, I mean, I don't love that song, but I, I definitely don't think it's like one of the worst songs of all time. I don't think it's even the best Delamitri song. I think I talked about this at the time. Uh, Always the Last to Know. That's a really good song. I think that's my favorite Delamitri track. Uh, but I, I had a feeling you were going to mention this as one of the favorite moments because that was one of those weird kind of deja vu things where we talk about something randomly on this show and then it ends up popping up somewhere else. I feel like that was the beginning and the end, though, of the Delamitri Assance, right? Like, they weren't on any <laughs> other shows, were they? Not as far as I'm aware. And also, maybe, like, the the, the key moment of this, the mo- like, the time where I've actually just been in shock while recording this is when you told me that Delamitri was a band and not a dude. Yeah, that was a big moment. Yeah, because you thought there was just a guy named Del <laughs> in the band. <laughs> and, like, like, that was the singer, and then there was a bunch of people behind him. And his name is Delamitri. Uh, no, it's a band. It's a band. And apparently there were other people out there who who thought that too. I remember people tweeting at us and saying, oh, I thought Delamitri was a guy and not a band. You see, it's not like know. the Del Fuegos or whatever. It's like, if it was called like the Delamitri, like, I don't think we'd have this confusion. But when people see like Del... Uh, unless we're talking about like a place like Del Mar or whatever, you assume Delamitri is a guy, right? And the fact that like ro- like Roll to Me is very much in that kind of smug singer songwriter mold. Like you can imagine like John Mayer or Duncan Sheik making a song with that very similar sentiment, or you know Sean Mullins or Eagle Eye Cherry, or l- we're just gonna remember some singer songwriter dudes from the late '90s, aren't we? I'm just gonna say Duncan Sheik, not a band, definitely a guy. But that could also be a band. Duncan Sheik or Eagle Eye Cherry. Eagle Eye Cherry could be a band, but that's just a guy. So yeah, it gets confusing if you delve into the world of late 90s singer-songwriters. Band or a guy. That could be a good game, actually, to play with with, with that era of musicians. 
uh, like Marcy Playground, band Ooh. or a person, you know, could be a band, could be a person, you don't know. Uh, I'll get to my next one, and I, you know, my first three were hyper specific. My last two are just topics that were more universal, but I had a lot of fun talking about on the show. Uh, the first one of these, my number four, Phoebe Bridger smashing her guitar on SNL. <laughs> and it wasn't so much talking about her smashing her guitar. It was talking about this as an example of a story that becomes a thing because the opposition to it has been largely invented online. You know, that I guess he had David Crosby. He was upset that Phoebe Bridger smashed her guitar. And then you had, like, you know, Blowfy0756251 maybe did a tweet complaining about it. You know, some guy with 10 followers. Brooklyn Defiant Dad was the main character in this That's one. right. That's right. The Brooklyn Dad Defiant. Oh, my God. Yeah, Brooklyn Dad Defiant. Well, and Crosby, too. Crosby was a big one and because uh, Phoebe clapped back at Crosby about that <laughs> whole thing. But by and large, no one gave a shit that she smashed her guitar. But this became a story. This was like a week-long story. It was a week-long story, indeed. It was like during the Super Bowl as well, so... Oh, was it? The, uh, oh, man. So there wasn't... So there was th- there were things going on. Were we still in lockdown at that point? I think we Very were. Very much so. Very much so. It was definitely like... Uh, it, was, it was definitely a story that inventing a guy like i'm surprised we haven't included more inventing a guy type stories in this top five but this is a very this is amongst the greatest inventing a guy stories of the past two years i think it's the number one i mean the only one that to me rivals it is the uh you know getting mad about someone saying that old people can't like olivia rodrigo remember like that was a story for like a week or two like where uh you know, all these people were very, all, all these like adult Olivia Rodrigo fans were very indignant about, well, music is music. And you don't have to be a kid to like this kind of music. Like, no one is fucking saying that. There might have been like one person on Twitter who said that. One random grumpy person said that. You know, like, clearly, not much is impeding the audience of Olivia Rodrigo. Adults are not being shamed. Into not liking her. The, the, there's a lot of evidence to the contrary to that. So that's the only other story I would put up there with Phoebe Bridger smashing her guitar on SNL as sort of like an inventing a guy to be mad at story. I don't know if there's any other ones. Those are the, the two big ones, though, I think, of the indie cast era. I think the other one might have been like the Billie Eilish of, it's, it was a Vogue, I think, cover story. Or something along those lines where like someone was like criticizing the fact that like she wasn't dressed in her typical... Um, like large, like very, uh, she was dressed like kind of more, uh, more scant. She was more scantily clad as opposed to like the big billowy clothes that she wore in the beginning. And like, you know, there, I I think there was like literally a New York times article that cited one tweet from someone with a hundred followers as a evidence of the backlash there. Yeah, I, I thought you were going to say the Billie Eilish doesn't know who Van Halen is story. I forgot about that completely. <laughs> I don't know. That might predate us a little bit, but that was another <laughs> just like you're inventing a story here. You know, that anyone would be upset at Billie Eilish because she doesn't know who Van Halen is. You know, beyond just like ran, like, like responding to randos on, on, on Twitter, like that just became a story. I think that really seemed to take hold during the pandemic that mm-hmm. we would just be 
angry at these random people who have no sway at all, you know, but they end up getting quote tweeted a thousand times and then it turns into a, you know, like a week long news cycle. So yes, yeah. Phoebe Bridger smashing her guitar, an annoying story, but like the meta aspect of it, I thought was, in, was fascinating. So what's the last thing on your list? Well, I just want to point out that like we're about two years away from Punisher, so like there might be a Phoebe Bridgers album cycle coming up soon. We missed the first one. I we we're gonna have to bunker up for that one. But uh, the la- the last uh, thing I'm gonna bring up, uh, I almost feel like we should play the intro of Bob Seger's Turn the Page while I go through this one. <laughs> um, you know, because like we've been through a lot here. Like I don't equate our hustle to that of the touring band but you know we have to go we've we've been through a lot over the past couple of years you know some one of us might have gotten a shitty night of sleep the night before when we record an episode or we might have to record on a wednesday instead of a thursday our work schedules get really messed up vacations you got covid that one time yes I'm, i'm thinking about this was really early on this was october 2020 where you know, this is when the gyms were still shut down and I had to kind of go running in my neighborhood to get the, you know, the blood moving in the morning. And I like landed really fucked up. Uh, I think I was listening to cloud. Nothing's you're, uh, you're a part of me. Uh, and then I like, I hobbled home and what it later turned out is that I recorded an entire episode on what later turned out to be a broken foot. Um, this is like my Willis Reed episode. We talked about, uh, Biba Doobie on this episode. (laughs) So me, me just, uh, me just like kind of like with my foot propped up ice down, like to the nth degree. I don't even think I mentioned it on there, but I don't think I knew this. Oh yeah. Did you tell me that you, that you, uh, you did an indie cast on a broken foot? Yeah. I mean, I, Oh my God. I did an indie. I did you know the next six to eight weeks of that indie cast on a broken foot. But at that time, that was like a fresh injury. I'm like, I, I got, like, I got to get through this. I'm like Willis Reed limping onto the court, uh, wow. hashing out trends even in a very diminished state. So, uh, my God, yeah, mic drop on that one, man. I know these aren't <laughs> ranked, but that should be your number one. I didn't know that. See, this makes me feel because I still have some residual guilt about canceling the episode where I had COVID and now I feel really bad about it. Cause you're playing on a broken foot. Now I feel like I should have just toughed it out and did like a total psychedelic foggy brained sick episode. That could have been like a really memorable indie cast, man. I'm feeling, <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling a little emasculated right now. I have to say after hearing you do this amazing feat of <laughs> podcast athleticism, damn man. That's awesome. Yeah. Good for you. Broken I mean, foot. If, if it was a broken hand, it might have been different. But I don't think like my left foot is like prime podcasting stuff. So it, it, well, it was definitely doable. But nonetheless, like I just I, I bring it up if only to convey to our audience the sacrifice that we make in order to hash out these trends every week for the most part over the past two years. Well, man, that's that that that's fantastic, man. Broken foot. Well, I feel a little anticlimactic saying my last thing, uh, but I really feel like this story was something that it was so fun for us to talk about, and it just tied together so many different strands of IndieCast content where you've got music writer intrigue, you've got older people getting upset, you've got 
indie rock favorites of the aughts being discussed. You got all the elements. I'm talking about Pitchfork rescoring their albums. Uh, I guess that was what, last year? That, I, I love I was, this story. I, I love that they did this. Are we uh, sure this was last year? Yeah, because that would have been, didn't they start in uh, 96? That would have been their 25th anniversary. To 2021. You're probably right. Like I, I, I'm sure you're. I correct. know we talked about. I yes. know we definitely talked about it on the October show. October fifth, twenty twenty one. You. So yeah. I know fuck, we talked man. about it. I so sworn that was twenty twenty. Fuck. And, and by the way, like I love that Pitchfork did this. I, to me, it's like them being playful with their own history and also just poking the bear a little bit, which I think is always kind of fun to do. Seeing the. Uh, Mid forties indie cast uh, listener get upset about Interpol turn out the bright lights being lowered from a nine point five to a seven point oh, delicious, so much fun conversation, um, and yeah, it was it was fantastic. I I actually you know I know people got legitimately upset about that. I kind of want Pitchfork to do that more often. <laughs> I en- I really enjoyed that. Like they they kind of took the piss out of themselves a little bit. I don't know. I thought it was like a pretty fun gesture, and it gave us so much content to talk about on this show. I feel like that lasted like more than one week, even. I think it was one of their more popular articles over the past year, so you might see it again for that reason alone. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, really the only thing I remember is the Interpol score. Maybe because that was the most (laughs) thing that we... I can't remember any other things that they changed. Uh, they gave yeah, Room on Fire a higher score. I think they re-reviewed a Regina Spector album. Uh, they one of the ones I was pleased about is that they re they gave the Big Boy album from 2010 a much lower score because that is one of the most overrated albums of the past 10, 15 years. So, the, yeah, some of them were pretty on point. Um, but yeah, that 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 the Interpol one was the major one. Like people didn't care as much about like uh, Room on Fire or you know just kind of re um, you know revisiting some of the things that were like super skunked. I think they might have didn't they like do like the Liz Fair zero point zero album again? I don't know. Yeah, wasn't there an album that was only it was like less than a year old that got re reviewed and Grimes, in Grimes. It was Grimes. <laughs> it was Grimes album from twenty twenty, which got Best New Music, showed up on the year-end list at like about 10 months after the album got released, and then they're like, eh, 6.8. We were... So, fascinating how quickly the tide can turn. Is that the doc that you get when you have a kid with Elon Musk? <laughs> like the Elon Musk's penalty? You know, I, I, I feel like there's like some Musk-related uh, intrigue with that lowering of the score. Uh, but no, that was great. So much fun. And look, man, look, 100, 100 episodes... I hope people don't mind us just smelling ourselves in this episode. <laughs> but, you know, you've listened to the show. Hopefully you liked hearing about Jimothy again and, and Kid G and Bo Burnham and Pitchfork Rescores and Ian's Wedding, Ian's Broken Foot, mm. which I didn't even know about. But, dude, hopefully you make it another 100 episodes, man. Yeah. I think we can do it. Another 100, 100 another 1,000. Who the fuck knows, man? I, I, think, I, I think we got the legs for it. We've now reached the part of the episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. 
Ian, why don't you go first? So Wednesday was a real recommendation corner type of day for IndieCast. We saw new singles from Peel Dream Magazine and Young Jesus, who we've uh, talked about on this show, and also Spielberg's, a Norwegian band that um, you know fits very squarely in the celebration rock subgenre. But uh, the bigger recommendation I'm going to make is it's kind of a general uh, catch-all for YouTube's from Sound and Fury, which happened the previous weekend in Los Angeles. I missed both the Sound and Fury Festival and White Ladder uh, anniversary shows uh, because I was out of town at a union delegates convention in Oakland. Uh, really fucked up my personal brand there. But um, particular, there's a closing set from the band Gulch, who uh, we might have talked about them in a recommendation corner that might have preceded uh, IndieCast because I think it came out in summer of 2020. They play, They headlined, they played their final show ever, and it got shut down by the cops. What a, no better way for a legendary hardcore band to go out. Um, now, they'll probably reunite in ten, five years maybe. But seeing that, seeing One Step Closer cover title fight, seeing the, the Pity Sex reunion. And also just like it's really great to see a hardcore festival pull off something that major. You know, it's like it's not like Coachella, obviously. It's not like as big as probably even like Pitchfork Fest or any of those other, like, you know, not quite Coachella-level festivals. But to see this, like, be pulled off in a really fun way, I don't know. It, it gives me a sense of real joy, even if it is just, like, a lot of sweaty people looking like they're beating the shit out of each other in a pit. Okay, so I'm going to be cheating here a little bit, because I'm going to be doing a double recommendation. But in a way, it's tied to one person. It's a guy from Philadelphia named Peter Gill. And he's in uh, a couple different bands. One of the bands is called Friendship. They put out a record last week called Love the Stranger. Ian actually reviewed this record for Pitchfork. I believe it got a 7.0. And I like this record a lot. I've been really into it. I would rec- I would describe it as like, to me it kind of sounds like Silver Jews with like a lot of pedal steel guitar on it. So if that's something that is appealing to you, I think this record's going to be definitely up your alley. Uh, Peter Gill is more involved. I guess he's the focal point of this other band that I want to talk about called Second Grade. They announced uh, their upcoming album this week. It's called Easy Listening. I believe it is out in September. And uh, they released a single this week, and it's called Strung Out On You. And I think it's like one of the best songs they've ever done. Uh, This is a band, Second Grade, that specializes in like really short and punchy power pop songs. And when I say power pop, you probably know what bands I'm referencing. Teenage Fan Club, obviously, is a real touchstone for bands in a contemporary sense that are into power pop. It seems like all of them are influenced by Teenage Fan Club, and I think Second Grade falls under that. I also hear elements of Sloan, the great Canadian band uh, that is not popular in the United States, (laughs) but ought to be. Great, great band. Uh, But I also hear, you know... Echoes of like OGs like Big Star and the Raspberries in this band as well. And in particularly this this new single, Strung Out on You, just super catchy and bubblegummy. There's lots of hand claps on it. It's so infectious and fun. Just perfect summertime music. And I'll say too, easy listening. I've been listening to this album this week, and again, it's not out for another few months here, uh, but it really is a really great record if you are into power pop. You are going to love this record. I just verified it is out September 30th. So we've got about, I guess, about a month and a half. Definitely check out the single. Also check out the previous second grade record. It's called Hit to Hit. 
Uh, I've recommended that album before. If you haven't checked it out yet, you're really going to love it. And also check out that Friendship record, uh, Love the Stranger, and read Ian's review. Ian did a good job of writing about it. Uh, That about does it for our 100th episode of IndieCast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 